This podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness. 1980s now. Welcome to a bonus flashback special Thanksgiving episode of 1980s now. My name is Will. Hey, if you're new to the show, each week we examine the importance of 1980s pop culture and its influence today. Be sure and check out our regular weekly show. But on this episode, we're going to be listening to our interview with Lila Robbins. Lila just starred on the final season of The Walking Dead as the governor of the Commonwealth, Pamela Milton, no spoilers. But in the last decade, she's also appeared on many of the most popular series of the last several years, including Homeland. The Blacklist, Murder in the First, Deception, The Handmaid's Tale, and one of my favorites, The Boys. What you may not know, though, is that years before her dozens of TV and movie roles, she made her feature film debut as the object of Steve Martin's affection, and and dare I say, our affection. The reason for his harrowing holiday journey in the greatest Thanksgiving movie of all time, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Here... In this interview, she tells us about her journey as a young artist and her tales about the roles she didn't get are as fascinating as those that she did. And uh, we talk uh, at length about uh, planes, trains, and automobiles, of course. Okay, let's hear our chat with Lila. Please welcome to the show, Lila Robbins. Hey, Lila. (laughs) Hi, Will. (laughs) Lila, thank you so much for talking to us today. We greatly appreciate it. In the annals of 1980s holiday films, ranking up there, certainly at the very top, is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, something that's close to our heart. And so, in the very least, we're grateful to talk to you about that during this holiday season. Uh, And we can get to that in a little bit. But of course, you know, folks know you well uh, from doing a number of different things on TV and film uh, well since then. But what folks may not realize is that you actually got your start in, in theater and still continue to do theater today. Yes, I do. I'm curious, however, though, you know, being from uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, as you are, and I will spare your mom you telling any stories about broccoli. Okay. <laughs> okay. She'll uh, be relieved. <laughs> but <laughs> in short, uh, you know, uh, your parents come from humble beginnings, but uh, ultimately your dad was a, a chemist who made incredible contributions to uh 3M and technology oh. used to this day. Yeah. You know, my dad used to bring products home, even ones that he wasn't developing and say, Hey kids, try this out. And, <laughs> uh, and he had nothing to do with this product, oh, but he okay. did. I do remember the day he came home with the post-it. Oh, all right. Yeah. And uh, I was like, and you know that the post-it was uh, created out of a mistake. Like the glue didn't work. Is that right? Okay. And then they found a way to use the glue to, mm. uh, <laughs> to, <laughs> raising their stocks quite a bit. Right. Um, and I said, dad, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. They should have bought stock that day. <laughs> yeah. I guess when you think about it, just in the abstract, it is kind of a silly thing, but yeah, but some of the simplest things are just are brilliant. I know. Who'd have thunk? But, but having, you know, sort of that background and, and uh, again, being it from St. Paul, what are the kind of art and pop culture that you were exposed to as a young person that would have inspired you to pursue the career that you have? Well, um, my my parents were immigrants from Latvia, and uh, it was kind of a hard and winding road getting here. And what I noticed was that when my parents went to the theater, my mother got very happy. She just loved the theater. And as a child, you know, you're, you're looking at your parents and you want to please them. And I think as, you know, a, a little girl looking up and seeing the smile on my mom or how it would change her mood, 
made me go, oh, I want to be a part of whatever makes mom happy. Right. And it ended up, you know, kind of going into the theater, right. partly because of that, I think. Right. It was sort of, so what sort of theater was it, when you talk about theater? And you well, there was theater, the Guthrie was... Theater, okay. the great Guthrie sure. Theater in Minneapolis, a wonderful institution. I've worked there four times. Uh, I've done a Tennessee Williams play there, Summer in Smoke. I did, and uh, my partner and I, Bob Cuccioli, we did Antony and Cleopatra. I did a, a world premiere of an Arthur Miller play called Resurrection Blues, where I got to hang out with Arthur Miller, which was a lot of fun. Wow. And, uh, and uh, also, what was the fourth thing? Oh, uh, recently, not too long ago, I did uh, Lion in Winter which was a lot of fun. I love going there. It's a beautiful theater. I, I think about them often now with uh, it being closed, you know, all the theaters being closed. Right. I think of the Guthrie often. It had so many people would go. I mean, all these farmers from the fields of Minnesota would come into the Twin Cities and see, you know, Hedda Gobbler. I mean, right. they, they just consistently came to that theater. It was beautiful. And it's a huge theater town. It has other, um, a myriad of theaters um, that are, very healthy and thriving when things aren't going the way they're going right now. Right. So at what point in your career is your first appearance at the Guthrie? And is this the moment where your family says she's made it? I mean, to see you on the stage that they would take you to see theater or. Oh, um, it's funny. My, my, my parents love the theater. So when I'd be on television, it was kind of like, yeah, I know, yeah, whatever, <laughs> you know, I mean, for them, they love the language that plays have in them and the poetry, you know, right. if it's Tennessee Williams or, so they were very impressed when I performed in our hometown stage, you yep. know, that was a big deal. And then after that, I was subsequently would like to go there because then I could spend time with them as well. Right. And in the in the more recent years with my mom, my, my father's passed away, but my mom is 90. And uh, in the last five years, I've looked for opportunities to work there just so I could, you know, be with my mom. Right. Um, and spend some quality time with her. Now, it seems, you know, you mentioned that your, your parents drawing this distinction or your family uh, between television and theater. And I, I get what sort of how that would be. And in, in, in back in the 80s, it was a little more... Uh, separate, these sort of lanes, you know, it's, you know, yeah. following one path or another. And I told this to Derek Wilson a couple of weeks ago when we talked to him, working in theater a little bit myself in the 1990s, I always felt, I felt like my friends who were, you know, from New York and in a theater, they looked down on the things I liked, you know, about pop culture, you know, hey, do you guys see this TV show? We don't have televisions. You know, it was that kind of thing. It was, like, <laughs> it was so lonely. Um, yeah, you know, when I went, to, I went to the Yale Drama School to get my master's. Right. And at that time, Boy, you, you, we were being trained to be theater actors. And if you even consider doing television, it was considered sort of like selling out in a really <laughs> right. cheesy way. And of course, now people cross over all the time. Sure. And people cross over from musicals to theater, uh, straight shows to TV to film. And that whole stigma has sort of disappeared now. But back then, we, yeah, we, we never had any classes about how to get a TV show or make it in the business or sure. any of that. We were strictly learning the craft of being on the stage. Right. A little hoity-toity. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so was your goal then to just, uh, when, when you're in school and you're studying, is your thought you're just going to be a stage performer? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted, I really kind of, the, the Guthrie was sort of the goal. Like I wanted, mm. I want to be able to pl play the classical plays in the regional theaters yeah. and I'd be a happy camper. And, and I really was. Uh, I never really ran after my film or television career. You know, I didn't, I didn't go to the right parties. I didn't kind of <laughs> schmooze with the right people. I, yeah. 
I think I was a little maybe intimidated by the business in some ways or didn't quite know how to navigate it or what did it really mean or what was, you know, I was very comfortable in the theater. I knew how to go to a play rehearsal and, and do my work and, you know, sort of plotted along. And then whatever came along outside of that was just sort of the, the cherry on top and found actually my TV career has really picked up a lot in the last six, seven years, you know. As I'm getting older, I'm <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's, hmm. it's, it's interesting to think of it that way. As you, you matured into television and well, again, it, into film, it's it. Yeah, no, it's, because often in TV, they want the young faces. Yeah, you know? it's, yeah. They want the young faces. So certainly. I'm kind of having a nice little little time of it right now. Right. And I'm, in, I'm enjoying it very much. I'm learning a lot about it. And, you know, the more you do it, obviously, as with everything, the more you understand it and understand how to navigate it and how to work with that camera and that, you know, what level of energy to play and what's right. effective on film and not. So I'm, I'm enjoying having a, you know, it's, it's always a lesson. Every day is a lesson when I go to the set. It's are interesting. You, are there things now, you know, again, you, you know, you mentioned how your training was on stage. Are you, are there things that you're, and you've continued acting on stage even while you've appeared in television and film. Are there things you've learned on screen or working, you know, before the camera that you, that are, tra that translate or have maybe improved or help you or changed your process preparing for a play? Well, you know, what's interesting. I think it was actually working on Richard Nelson's um, play cycle, the Apple family plays mm -hmm. that I did at the public theater. We started 10 years ago and we did a play every year for four years. And it was the same, more or less the same group of people right. um, playing a family and Richard Nelson, the writer and director, he really wanted our acting to be very, um, not even, he doesn't even call it naturalism. He calls it ver verisimilitude theater. It's like he wanted people to feel like they were flies on the walls when they mm. came to see our plays. And in fact, the people sitting in the front row would, row would literally have their feet on the carpet of our set. <laughs> so they were, we would do scenes and a uh, an audience member would be literally a foot away from you. Right. So he wanted our acting style to be very... Um, natural. We, we didn't have to project our voices because he had all these microphones that were mm. hanging from the ceiling that had a very nuanced soundscape. And he insisted on us not performing, not, so to speak, acting. Mm. And I think he actually made me understand more of what I needed to do in front of camera. Mm. So oddly, it was a play right. that helped me be better in front of a camera. Right. And it's interesting because most folks probably don't appreciate the technique you learn in theater, especially when you're studying with your voice, you know, you're taught to project to the back of the theater. Then you get in front of a camera. Yeah. They'll tell you to tone it down because you don't need to do that. Yeah. Yes. In fact, in fact, the, another kind of flip story to that is when I worked at the Guthrie, the old Guthrie space, it was a very small thrust with, you know, a hundred, uh, 1800 seats that went up in this very steep grade. And, and the actors there would say, you know, you've got to reach that last person at the top of that, that row. And, and I would always feel like, oh, I just feel like I have to be so big. And they said, well, right. to tell the truth out there, mm. you got to lie up here a little bit. <laughs> so you're feeling like you're overdoing something on that stage, but that right. person in the back row is actually feeling the truth. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a tricky energy game. Yeah. And a, yeah, a bizarre experience. So taking it back to the 1980s, I note that in, again, you studied at Yale, you studied your MFA, your goal to be in the theater, and maybe even the smaller goal of making it big at the Guthrie, you know, because that's sort of how you came up. But 
On the way to the Guthrie, maybe, I'm not sure of the timeline here, you were cast in a play written by Tom Stoppard, directed by Mike Nichols, and, if Wikipedia is to be believed, took over a role uh, originated by Glenn Close. I did. How is it that you make it, is this your, is this your first, you know, big break, so to speak? It, uh, yeah, it, and it was my first play in New York. In fact, oh. I was brought to New York to do that play. I had been up at the Williamstown Theater Festival and I had auditioned the spring I graduated from Yale for another role in the real thing on Broadway, but didn't get it. But Mike Nichols remembered me from that. Wow. And then when Glenn Close uh, was not coming back to it, when Jeremy Irons was coming back to it, he cast me and I was up at the American Repertory Theater in Boston. I was supposed to be with them for a year. And three months into that gig, I, I got a Broadway show. <laughs> so I remember I came to New York and they put me up in some hotel across from Penn Station. I don't know what the hotel is across mm. from Penn Station anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I didn't even have a place to live and we were rehearsing we had two weeks to rehearse it and I had oh. to find an apartment and it was all, you know, baptism by fire. And it was a very, very lucky break for me. Yeah, how long a run was the show ultimately for you? Well, I did it for, I think I did it for six months. Wow. I did it for six months and I did it with Jeremy for probably five and then Nicole Williamson came into it. And I had, had been offered a, uh, a movie called The Money Pit oh. with Tom Hanks. <laughs> of course. And, uh, but I tested for it and they kind of said, you know, Lila, you're funny, but you're not wacky. <laughs> and so we're going to kind of look around a little bit more. So they kind of looked around to find somebody else. Right. And I was happily ensconced at the real thing, yeah. <laughs> doing my thing, you know, the play. And they came back to me and said, oh, we want you to do it. And by then oh. I was kind of like a little insecure about, well, I'm not <laughs> wacky enough. So I'm not sure I'm going to do this. And I, I, um, I passed on it. <laughs> I passed on working with Tom Hanks. What was I well, thinking? <laughs> you, you told them, well, I didn't get any wackier. You know, I'm still That's the same true. wackiness. I know. I thought, well, the last thing you want to be is insecure when you're trying to do a comedy. I mean, yes. you know, that's rough. You know, folks love the money pit. My wife loves the money pit. I think it's fine. I think you're fine that you didn't do it. That's fine. <laughs> Tom Hanks, you know, that's, that's and who knew at the time? Who knew? Right. <laughs> but, if, you know, so I, I guess sticking with the 80s, of course, however, as I mentioned at the very beginning of this, you're in, in, a, in an iconic, a film that is far well more regarded uh, uh, than The Money Pit. Let's face it here, right? Planes, trains, and automobiles. Again, it seems like a story of, you know, sort of what you're talking about getting on Broadway here. Um, or I guess for me, my curiosity is, is how is it that you you are suddenly cast in a film written, directed, produced by one of the hottest uh, screenwriters, certainly at the time, Mr. John Hughes, and then starring two of the hottest actors of the decade, Steve Martin and John Candy. How is it that you find your way to uh, to be in that film? Well, you know, I, got, <laughs> I don't know if I should be telling these stories. Oh. Uh, when I was actually cast in Roxanne. Oh, really? You're kidding on all my favorites. Okay. Yes. And I was at Williamstown and I got a call from, who was it? Was it the producer? Yeah, I think so. And he said, you know, Steve, this is the first screenplay he's written without his writing partner. Mm. And he's the only star in the movie. And we're all starting to feel like we need another star to be in the movie. Oh, So they took it away from me and gave it to Daryl Hannah. Wow. So I think in some ways, maybe, maybe Planes Trains was a, a gift, you know, mm. 
I think that's the right sequence of events, if I'm not mistaken. You know, I've, I've forgotten which way around that was. Sure. I must have auditioned. I must have read for it. Oh, I don't have a lot of memory of that. They flew me out to L.A. They'd already shot most of it. They were actually about sure. six weeks overtime and uh, over budget. And actually, I got there and John Hughes, there was a house that had been, the interior of the house had been built on a set. And he said, I don't like this house. I'm going to have them redo it. So they sent me home for a week and then came back and then we shot. And then, of course, most of my performances on the cutting room floor, oh. I remember going to the premiere and going, oh, my God. But, you know, when you have a choice of John Candy and Steve Martin and sure. Lila Robbins, you're, I don't know who's on the cutting room floor. <laughs> I can tell you right now. Wait, now we need to demand the Lila Robbins cut. We need to start that hashtag on Twitter. <laughs> That's right. All the unseen scenes. Yes, we need to have me standing it. by the phone, waiting for it to <laughs> ring, brushing my teeth. Maybe a little montage in front of a mirror, putting on different outfits. I don't know, something. So when, you, when you're, uh, you know, when you, you, you said uh, originally you offered the part for Roxanne, had you auditioned opposite Steve Martin at that time to get that role? Yes, I do remember I flew out to L.A. I remember a house with a swimming pool, but I can't tell you whose house it was. And we did a lot of scenes and actually filmed some. It was like a bit of a screen test kind of mm. thing. Yeah. It's so weird. I don't remember, you know, it's been a long time. Yes. Yeah. And I asked, I asked a question about Steve Martin because I was curious if by the time, because again, like you said, most of your footage wound up on the cutting room floor and whether or not you had already had uh, worked with him, because, you know, I was curious as to what that uh, experience was, I guess, working opposite uh, Steve Martin. Well, you know, the thing is a lot of, I mean, uh, they were out, you know, doing the funny stuff and I'm sitting at home waiting for them. So the only day I shot with them, I think maybe they're one or two right. when they come home. And then sure. we're having the Thanksgiving dinner together. So my act, actual time with those two actors was very brief, right. but they were very nice and very lovely and very sweet to me. And, you know, I was a deer in the headlights and, but uh, I get a lot of comments about that film. It's funny. A lot of people uh, love the moment when he comes home and I come down the stairs. A lot of people have talked about that moment. I just got chills. You just saying that. Oh my God. I, I, I was thinking about the movie and I haven't seen the movie in its entirety in a while. So I thought, and immediately I thought about the ending. Mm. The last six minutes of the film, starting with that moment where, you know, Steve Martin's character has this revelation that uh, John Candy's character wasn't, there was something strange about his story. And then he realizes that he has nowhere to go. It's, it starts about six minutes before, I think before the ending of the film, everything, that, the whole film rides on that. If, and to add even more to that, your character in particular, in the way it's shot, the way it's edited, they're sort of reveal with you coming down the stairs, your character coming down the stairs. Yeah. It's, and even the moments with you on the phone throughout, it, it's, it's really, that is the heart of the story. This idea that as a, a viewer, an audience member, we understand what Steve Martin is working so hard, why he's working so hard to get home. Oh. It's not for the kids. He doesn't care about the kids that much. <laughs> you know, when the kids come in the foyer there, he's like, yeah, move aside. Where's mom? Oh. There she is. And, and really, I think it's that sort of, you know, we're able to feel for him, you know, how he must feel about you and, you know, the characters, of course. And, but for that and that story, the film would be fine. But that elevates it to, you know, uh, again, to, you know, top oh. holiday movie. Absolutely. And Ray and I were having this conversation just a couple of days ago. Comedy, it was funny, but without the heart, it would have been eh, fine. Oh, yeah. It's such a sweet story. I mean, such a, a story of humanity and, yep. you know, caring about others and not judging people, you know, not judging a book by its cover or any of those things. I mean, it, this man, you know, they irritate, I mean, John Candy's character just irritates the <laughs> heck out of, yeah. <laughs> out of him. And yet there's, 
it's just so heartening and warm. And, you know, I think even more nowadays, it's such a wonderful tale and I'm sure people will enjoy it again this season. Oh my gosh. Yes. And yeah. It, yeah. It's a classic. It's become a classic. Oh, yeah. I remember when we were kids growing up Thanksgiving, you know, mom and whoever, my dad would be working on Thanksgiving dinner. My sister and I would watch the parade at some point in, in late in the morning or after the parade, uh, March of the Wooden Soldiers would be on, you know, Laurel and Hardy. And then I think Wizard of Oz was on that night, but there weren't <laughs> any Thanksgiving films per se. It was, those were our Thanksgiving films, but now we have a, an actual yeah. Yeah. A bonafide. Yeah. Um, Thanksgiving film. Yeah. Yeah. Now this is me be sounding cynical. I wonder if this story would fly today, right? This idea, it's unfortunate how we so divided we are that, you know, having this concept where somebody would reach out to another person who's clearly they have different, uh, you know, come from different lives and different philosophies, et cetera. Like you said, he irritates the heck out of him all movie. Invite him to his home. I feel like at this point, I don't know, wouldn't fly, right? I think in this environment that we've been living in, uh, yeah, it seems unlikely. But it's interesting, you know, the church that I go to, they talk a lot about hospitality mm. and inviting people that are different from you or um, into your home. And, you know, now we can't do that anymore, but, but back when yeah. none of this was happening, we were encouraged to do that sort of thing because that's, it's really over breaking bread, you know, where you really can find the commonality. Uh, you know, we all want to have a good meal. We all want to yeah. have our kids flourish. We all want to make a buck. I mean, there's, we're a lot alike. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and maybe the relaxation of, of having a meal together sort of can make more room f for those sorts of conversations or those exchanges of ideas. Yes. Oh, you've never been at Thanksgiving at my house. Oh, lots <laughs> of screaming and fighting. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, uh, no, no, actually no. <laughs> Fights. Every other day, but no, we put, we keep it together for there. So again, in the 1980s, cause that's what this show is about folks. Shortly after you're in this, again, you know, legendary film, you're starring opposite another hot commodity from the 1980s, Mr. Tom Selleck in An Innocent Man. Yes. Again, uh, is, so is it, um, is this off the uh, back of Planes, Trains, and Automobile that you're able to parlay a role in another film? Yes, I think that it followed pretty closely if it was not the same year. I'm not quite, I'm not quite clear on that. Yeah, release dates, it was 87 and 89. I don't know when you shot them necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, I had to go, let's see, I went to do a screen test for that. I went to LA. Oh, I like to tell that story. <laughs> I, was, I was in the waiting room. I think it was like the callback. There was like two of us sitting in the waiting room, you know, to be sort of considered for this role. And the other woman was Julia Roberts. Is that right? And I got the role. Wow. <laughs> and the rest is history, darling. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. She's not on the boys. <laughs> That's right. Julia, who? <laughs> exactly. No, no um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tom was very lovely and fun and lighthearted friendly, sweet person would always take time to talk to the fans. You know, if like we were shooting outside or something, you know, they'd all be gathered there to get his autograph. And mm. he always went over and spent time with uh, his fans. That's great. It's always great to, to hear that folks we admire are as nice and warm and charming as, you know, you would hope they would be, or they see him on TV in our screen. Yeah. Oh, he's a terrific person. I haven't seen him since. I mean, I was, I did an episode on Blue Bloods, but he wasn't there. Oh. In fact, he, I think, was not even in town or something because I said, oh, is, is, is um, 
is Tom around? I'd love to say hello to him, you know, and then he heard that I had been there and he sent a message through somebody there and, you know, hello, hello, but I haven't seen him since the oh. day we did that film. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a long time. That would have been a neat reunion if you had a scene together. That would have been, that would have been even better. Cool right. Easter egg. Um, so yeah, of course, you know, as we've been sort of talking about here and there throughout this uh, interview here, you've been on a number of hit shows in the last decade. Uh, Blue Bloods, Homeland, Blacklist, The Blacklist, Handmaid's Tale, and most recently, uh, The Boys, of course. Has your evolu- the evolution of your career su- surprised you at all? That, you, again, you went from somebody, you know, focused on theater to having a thriving career in, on screen. Yeah, you know, it really, I mean, I'd always, I'd done a lot of TV for HBO, you know, um, in Treatment, Sopranos, Sex and the City, uh, bored to death. I had, I had a great, a, kind of a nice little ongoing thing with HBO, which was really wonderful, but my TV career really changed with Homeland when I got that. And once again, it was somebody remembering me like, like, like the Mike Nichols story with the real thing. And I, I understand this, the story goes that Alex Ganza remembered me from when I auditioned in the pilot to play the president's wife. Oh, wow. Uh, which ultimately went to Tanya Balsam. But he remembered me from that. And then this was like, I was in season four. And so I was, I was, I auditioned for it. I was put on tape at my agents and I was on my way to Europe for a trip. And I was like, well, I'm put myself on tape and I'm going to Europe tomorrow. And these people are never going to call me. <laughs> and, then, and then I got the job and I was so thrilled because wow. I got to go to Cape Town, South Africa for Five and a half months. Wow. And it's so funny because I hadn't really been watching the show. So I thought, oh my God, I have to catch up on my homeland. I have to catch up on my homeland. And I put in the pilot and I'm going, why is this familiar to me? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I had auditioned for it like four years ago for the pilot. It was all rushing back because homeland was such a popular show. Oh yeah. That really helped, helped me out. Mm, yes. And, uh, and then that kind of bounced into murder in the first which then bounced into a season of deception. And then uh, the stuff that I've been doing lately, the Blacklist and the boys. And, and right now I'm working on a miniseries called Dr. Death mm. for the Peacock Channel. Okay. And it's Very a true more than that? Okay. story of oh. Dr. Dunch, who was a spinal surgeon in Texas who maimed and or oh, paralyzed and or killed a lot of people. Jeez. And it's not really clear as to whether he was basically a serial killer or he was just mentally wow. deficient or, or what the problem was. It's based on a podcast called Dr. Death, which mm. is fascinating. Mm. And I'm playing the CEO of uh, Baylor Plano Hospital, which is one of the first hospitals that he worked out of. Wow. Um, and so yesterday I worked with our lead guy, Joshua Jackson. Wow. He's playing the lead. Sure. And, uh, and on Tuesday, I work with Alec Baldwin and Christian Slater. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, so I'm doing um, a handful of those with my big wig. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a big wig. You're stuck with a big wig. <laughs> I'm stuck with a big wig, yeah. Uh, I just realized you're playing a big wig in a big wig. Maybe there's, <laughs> I'm not a writer. Maybe something's there. I don't know. <laughs> I think this has been a lesson for, you know, aspiring uh, performers, Lila, because, you, you know, you didn't get these jobs, a couple of jobs you didn't get right away. And still, you know, someone remembered you and you were kind and gracious in addition to being talented and led mm-hmm. to something else. You know, I have another little story about that. Um, I had, lo- when I was really young, I think around the real thing time, I did an audition with Robert De Niro. Wow. 
And I, I went in and I got to improvise with Mr. De Niro for an hour. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And the director just let us kind of play out some stuff. And there was a piano in the room. So I started playing piano. And when I auditioned for the good shepherd, which Mr. De Niro directed, I uh, reminded him of that. Wow. And I, I'm reminding him of uh, an hour out of his life from like 25, 30 <laughs> years ago. And he, he said, Oh yeah. Yeah. And in the audition for the good shepherd, he, I had, I had a very small role. I, I played Bill Hurt's wife. I literally had maybe five lines. If that I had to play the piano a little bit. So I did, I had these three scenes, you know, with one line here and one line there I was auditioning for him. And halfway through the second one, he gets up out of the couch and I'm thinking, Oh, he wants me to leave the room. He's done. He's had it. He's, you know, I can leave now comes over and he shakes my hand and he says, I want you to do the role. Wow. <laughs> and it was the first time I'd gotten um, an offer in the room at, in that moment, you know? And I said, oh my God, it should always be this fun, you know? <laughs> and I think it was partly because I had reminded him sure. of that time. And later the casting director told me that in some ways, Mr. De Niro, I don't know if this is true or not, but he had told, the casting director said that, that Mr. De Niro wanted people in his film that, almost like a kind of a karmic thing. Like he wanted to bring people into it that he owed something to or felt something about, or, you know, and another friend of mine, Amy Wright was in it and she had been in uh, the deer hunter with him wow. just kind of wanted to be surrounded by kind of a karmic energy of friends and family and people that maybe, as you said, that, you know, we were ships in the night or something and suddenly this magnetic thing brings us together on his film. Yeah. And it was just a really special moment. Yeah, and exactly. Like you said, if you hadn't told him that, he wouldn't have realized that karmic connection that you had. Yeah, yeah. That's very sweet. So, you know, you plot, you plot along and, and sometimes uh, things come around, you know. So you know, every now and then, I, I don't regret how I got to my place in life, but there's some things that I come across, like the technology today for creating music. Had I had that when I was a youth, I would have composed, I would have written a lot more songs and music and you know, I just, I'm envious of, you know, sort of youth that way. But do you think it's easier or thinking about your own journey, um, do you think it would have been more or less difficult to accomplish what you did in the 80s now? I guess, how does the 80s compare as far as someone starting a career the way that you did? I guess when I was younger, I wish I had been a little more savvy about the business or been mm. a, little, a little more aware that that was kind of part of what I needed to do. You know, I literally thought I could walk into an audition in a gunny sack with no makeup and, you know, I'm a real actress and <laughs> you should hire me, you know, instead of realizing you got to do the thing, you know, you got to, the zhuzh. <laughs> and, and I think a lot of the young people, you know, know how to zhuzh mm. and, mm. Uh, and look fantastic and have all this, you know, um, social media stuff. But in mm. some ways, my fear for them is that there's so much focus on that, yeah. that if you don't have the goods to back it up or the craft, yep. you know, all my, all through my early twenties, it was just pounded into me by wonderful older actresses that you needed to know what you were doing. You needed to have a, a craft. You, you, you don't expect to be a, a pianist without practicing. Mm. You have to, you know, some people think that you can be an actor because you have a resume photo and right. <laughs> you know, your uncle knows somebody, yeah. I don't know. And I suppose you, it could work out for some people, yep. but I, when I, when I teach uh, my student, I mean, I, I teach on and off here and there. 
I always try to emphasize that, like you really have to love the thing itself. I mean, all mm -hmm. this other stuff, if you're doing it to become famous, if you're doing it to become rich, if you're doing it to, you know, stroke your ego, none of these things are going to really be fulfilling. I mean, you have to love the thing itself. Mm -hmm. That's why I've always been happy uh, doing my work, whether I'm doing it, uh, you know, in Timbuktu or doing it here or there. It was the doing itself that was important to me and was satisfying and, and fed me. And all the other things were really great. I mean, I remember like going, I don't know, getting a paycheck for the first time, you know, in a plane. Oh my God, they pay you too. I mean, this is great, you know, <laughs> because I, I would do it for free. <laughs> and I think just, there's just a lot of pressure on young people to have that facade really polished mm. and those connections really hooked up. But you show up, you got to know what you're doing. And I'm not sure the focus is always there. So what we're hearing is it's bad. It was better in the eighties and that's what we're going to say. Yeah. That, 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 that's the short answer. Yeah. It was better. Always better in the eighties. <laughs> Lila, thank you. We're so grateful for talking to us today. Thank you so very much. And we want you to have a happy Thanksgiving because we will, because we're going to check in on planes, trains and automobiles. Oh yeah. Maybe I'll pop it in too. We'll see. Hey, thanks for checking out this special bonus Thanksgiving episode of 1980s. Now, happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. Be sure and check out our regular weekly show. We will talk to you again on 1980s now. Mm -hmm.